That was really sweet. So first I want to start with asking Jake, how in the world do you say all those things without crying? I'd be, I'd be like crying. Like, I'm sure you all are so proud of Hunter and Priscilla. Um, yeah, to see y'all's life and to know your kids and to just to see what he's doing with them is just an encouragement to me. And uh, just to see what God is using both of you uh, to produce in our church and your family is just so encouraging. See, I'm crying talking about your kids. Yes, like father, like son. Uh, my name is Noah Joyner, and I help our church take steps forward towards Jesus through uh, equipping, uh, equipping North Wakers for their day-to-day ministry in our community, and uh, also do the same uh, with other churches here in the U.S. And, and internationally. It's one of the things I love to get to do, and I also get to help establish uh, believers here at North Wake and, and other churches through, through teaching God's Word. And I get to do that here uh, from time to time, and I'm honored that, that I get to do that. I get to teach alongside such world-class and varied uh, teachers. And so uh, over, the, over these four weeks that we have, the last three and then the one to come, there will be four of us all teaching alongside of one another. And that's such a gift to the church. You all receive such good teaching uh, week to week and, and Sunday to Sunday in our classes and our student ministry and, and up here and uh, just good, trustable, humble leaders. And I, I hope uh, that if, uh, if Sunday, and here's the only thing that you get to do at North Lake, I hope that you'll take the leap into uh, a small group or into one of our classes uh, that we offer on Sunday mornings uh, where you can get more of that equipping, more of that establishing, encouraging uh, work in God's Word. I hope that that's not lost on you. Uh, If you're not sure how to get into one of those classes or how to get into one of those small groups, we do a thing called a meet and greet right out here, and uh, some of our leaders will be there. They would love to to help you get connected and find your way here at North Wake, or you can come and speak to me directly. I'd love to help you find your way. We're in the middle of a series this morning that is designed to help us find our way in this world. Uh, to consider why we are here. And the most direct way to find out is to go to the source, to see where we came from as humanity, as men, as women. And it is God's kindness to us to give us a clear explanation of our origin in detail. Not just where we come from, but why we exist. We get the where and the why. And over the last few weeks, we have learned that humanity is to image God or reflect him with our being and activity. That our likeness with him shows him off for all to see as we live lives of true worship and loving obedience. So like our mirrors at home reflect us, we reflect him. That origin story is broken into three parts. Part one is the the wide lens version that shows the big picture, and Carson covered that two weeks ago. Part two and three are the close-up version where the man is created, then the woman. Larry covered part two of that, the creation of man, last week. And as we saw at the end of part two, it has a bit of a wrinkle in it. All is going well. God created man. He's showing him around the place and telling him about uh, the expectations for life in the garden. And God tells him about the trees and how they will give him food. But then there's this one tree 
that if you eat from it, it will bring death. It will ruin everything. And here the reader notices something of a wrinkle in an otherwise smooth narrative. Like if you were enjoying an excellent meal and you noticed a grain of sand in that food. It's tiny, but it's, it's hard to ignore. It's halting. It seems to be out of place. It's a, it's a dark spot in an otherwise bright story. It seems to be a foreshadowing of something gloomy. And this week in part three, the creation of the woman, that wrinkle I mentioned, it lays over into our passage and it creates a bit of drama for the reader. Before we take a look at that wrinkle, before we look at our passage this morning, I want to make mention of a couple of things. Uh, there will be a lot that I don't get to this morning in my message. Lots and lots and lots and lots. And two things specifically that you may still have questions about when we're done. Uh, first might be singleness and how that relates to creation and life in the body of Christ. And so I would encourage you to uh, go to North Wake, uh, our website, uh, northwake.com, has old sermons. I preached a sermon in 2008. Yes, they still let me preach that long ago, and I still get to do some of that. We'll see how well that 2008 sermon, you know, preserved there. Um, but you can go there, and you can listen to some comments that I made about singleness uh, then. Secondly, um, specifics of the relationship between husband and wife. And I'll point you to a sermon that I did back in September in Colossians 3 uh, that gives some good detail on what that looks like. And so if you're kind of left with those two things, some questions there, I would encourage those two sermons. You can find better resources out there. But at least if you disagree with those, you can take me to lunch and straighten me out. As we begin, let's pray and ask God for help as we open his word together. Holy Spirit, you powerfully guide the writing of the words we're considering this morning. May you give us eyes to see and ears to hear how they reveal Christ and our need for him today. May Jesus be honored and worshipped through what is said and thought here now. Thank you, Father. We pray it in the name of Jesus. Amen. Look at Genesis chapter 2, verse 18 with me. It says this. Then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. After days of creating, then declaring things good, we see a break in the pattern with these words. It is not good. And it seems that verse 18 is a companion with verse 17, creating a bit of drama, leaving the reader thinking, what will come of this? What's going to happen because of what is said here? First, let's address the idea of alone. Don't think Tom Hanks and Castaway with only a volleyball as a friend. No. No, he has God as his nearest companion. He has a forest full of food, a bountiful paradise of pleasures. So what was this aloneness, and, and, and why was it not good? And as, as we work our way through the passage, the notion that something is lacking will come into focus. Lack rather than disorder will be presented as what is not good. Something missing rather than something broken. And much like if one were building a machine that needed a spark plug, before the addition of the spark plug, the machine would, would not be able to function as intended. It would, in effect, be not good. 
And if the machine of humanity was intended to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and the, uh, over every living thing that moves on the earth, then that objective would be severely hindered if man were to remain alone or without the woman. Something is missing. Someone must be added for the image of God to be fully carried forth as described in Genesis 1.27, where it says, So God created man in his own image, and the image of God he created him, male and female he created them. It's a matter of both essence and function. Humanity can't be and do what God intended without the addition of the woman. So God gets to work. He announces how he will address the issue of man's aloneness. He says, I will make a helper fit for him. Uh, The word helper here is used 22 times in the Old Testament, twice in chapter 2 of Genesis, once here, and then over in verse 18, as we'll see, uh, and verse 18 and uh, over in verse 20. Every other time it's used, it refers to those for whom Israel seeks help. 17 times it refers to how God helps his people, each time as a protector or deliverer, a shield or a keeper. On three occasions, it's used when Israel seeks help of other nations for protection or deliverance. It often denotes an alliance or a partnership. So, when you hear the word helper, don't think Santa's little helper or water boy or the one who makes sure the boss has the tools he needs, a better analogy might be the type of help one would seek from a Navy SEAL if we want to be consistent with the other uses of the word in the Old Testament. So a helper here could easily denote one who will be an alliance of partnership with the man, offering some sort of deliverance. There's another aspect of the coming helper we must consider. She will fit or she will correspond to the man. We will see in the coming verses that that in creation, the animals all have one that fits or is like them or corresponds to them, but not for the man. As mentioned before, something or someone is missing. So in summary, we might say that the notion of helper is meant to denote that she will be that which God uses to deliver man from his aloneness. She will fill in what is lacking in her absence. Humanity is designed to include her presence, so she will be the deliverance from that present reality, bringing a sense of wholeness upon her arrival. Look with me at verse 19 says this, Now out of the ground the Lord had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. As part of establishing humanity and creating this fitting helper, God includes man in the creative process. He does so by giving him specific work to do. He is to name all the beasts of the field and the birds of the air. So as people who have probably heard this story before, it's easy to miss the significance of, of what's happening here. So, so as a way to take this verse in, I'd like to highlight a few things I see in this section. First, God partners with the man in a working project. God does a part in forming all the birds and the beasts, and then he invites the man 
to do a part in naming. Second, God seems to have an interest in what the man will call the birds and the animals. He wants to see what he will do. So, for a God who knows everything, why does he want to see? It's, it's, it's not so he can find out, but rather, I think, because he takes some joy in seeing him do the naming. Third, God allows the man to have final say on what they are called. There's an open-handedness God has in the inclusion of the man here. Like a father with a son, he allows him to do his part in learning along the way, working in concert to bring about a good end. I think that is quite significant as we consider who God is and how he interfaces with humanity. In addition, don't miss the significance of giving something a name. One of my favorite things to do is to name things. Uh, really, really, it, it is. I, I love to name things. We don't name our cars. Some people do that. We don't do that. Maybe I think that's weird. I don't know. We've never done that. Maybe you do. It's okay. But I like to name things. Businesses, ministries, kids, dogs. It's part of caring for a thing that you've made or been entrusted with. It's, it's one of the ways we give meaning to things. We name our children after those we admire or those ideals we hope they will live for. A name gives dignity. It sets trajectory. It claims responsibility. It represents care. It denotes origin. Names can bless and names can curse. Think a boy named Sue. And we see each of these aspects through names given throughout the Bible. For example, Moses means to draw out or to pull out or to draw out of water because he was drawn out of the water. But God will also draw the people out of Israel through Moses, through water. Jesus means salvation because he will save his people from their sins. And there's a pattern in the Bible like this with naming. Uh, we named our uh, first daughter, Johanna, Bethlehem because uh, my mother-in-law's name is Beth, and I want her to be like Beth, and I want her to be like Ruth, who lives where? In Bethlehem. We name people certain things because of what we want them to be, because of what we hope them to be. We take care in naming them. God invites the man to be like him and imitate him, just as God called day, day, and night, night, and earth, earth, and heaven, heaven. So the man now calls them by the name he gives them. It's a sign of delight and a sign of care. If we were to summarize this verse, it may go something like this. God says, I form, you name, we take care of it all together. We'll see in the next verse that God has another objective in bringing all the animals to be named. He wants the man to realize or to learn something. Look with me in verse 20. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. As the man is doing the naming, he sees a pattern among the birds and beasts. They come in pairs. He's and she's, males and females, that fit or correspond to each other. He donkeys and she donkeys. He hawks and she hawks. They all have likeness, but a difference also. 
they go together, or the fact that they match, that seems to be the idea here. But for him, there is no match. His pair was incomplete. No helper fit for him could be found. So something or someone is missing. The man's aloneness is put on display, and it is not good. How will humanity be fruitful and multiply? How will they have dominion over creation and image God, as mentioned in chapter 1, without the helper that fits the man? The naming of the beasts and the birds brings the issue into focus. So, what will be the solution to the issue? Let's look at verse 21. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. God continues his work of creation, this time taking a a different approach. Uh, The man he created from the dust of the ground And he breathed life into him. This time, rather than forming from the dust, he uses the body of the man to acquire his building block for the helper. It seems that the author intends to distinguish the man and the helper from the rest of creation. Uh, Dr. John Salehammer, uh, he says this, he puts it this way. He says, in the first chapter, the author has already intimated that humanity's creation in the image of God somehow entails their creation as male and female. In the narrative of creation of the woman, in chapter 2, the author has returned to develop this theme by showing that humankind's creation in God's image also entails a partnership between man and his wife. The likeness which the man and woman share with God in chapter 1 finds an analogy in the, in the likeness between the man and his wife in chapter 2. Here also in the first chapter, the, man, the human likeness to God is shown against the backdrop of their distinction from other creatures. In short, I see three marks of humanity that distinguish them from the rest of creation here in Genesis 1. First, their likeness to one another as male and female, the partnership they enjoy with one another and with God, and their likeness to God as those created in his image. None of the other animals, none of the other creatures are created in God's image. None of the other creatures are invited to partner with God in his work of establishing and caring for creation, and none of the other creatures enjoy the unity and likeness that mankind enjoys as male and female. They are distinct. So the varied creative approach that God takes here also includes putting man into a deep sleep, which on the face may seem like a simple supernatural anesthesia, right? And though I'm sure that the man was glad for the deep sleep because who wants to be awake during surgery, I get the sense that there's something greater than a medical process happening here. So throughout the scripture, sleep can represent the dark place where God does transformative work or figurative death that brings about something new or better. We see it twice later in the book of Genesis where God makes his covenant with Abraham promising to make his offspring like the many stars. 
He also promises a land for those descendants at the same time. And then after that, the same promise is reaffirmed to Jacob as he sleeps. That's where he has the vision of the ladder. God confirms his promise through the work he does as they sleep. It is no different with the man here. God does what he says he will do. But most times his people have to sleep to enter into that promise. So here we see a figurative death that leads to a promise fulfilled. So as promised, the Lord builds the helper that fits and then brings her to the man. In the same way, the animals and the beasts were brought. But this time, the, the response is quite different. So how does he respond? Rather than discovering lack, as he did when he saw all the animals, he finds wholeness, likeness, and similarity. Look with me in verse 23. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Here we see the man rejoicing at the completeness, the wholeness that her arrival brings. Humanity is delivered from the lack of her presence and delivered into a place of flourishing and living as God fully intended. Things are ready to fill the earth and subdue it together. There's wholeness, there's completeness. And so just as the author uttered a poem about male and female, and how they would image God back in chapter 1, now the man does the same. He sings out in joy for the helper God has made. Finally, he says, there's one like me who came from me. Like the animals, all had fitting ones for them. Now he has one that fits. But unlike the animals, she has been made from his body rather than the dust. So the man awakens from his God-given slumber to discover his God-given helper, fitted perfectly to him. God has kept his promise to the man, and he has brought about what he called very good from chapter 1. His work is complete. The creation of woman serves as the crescendo of the creation account. All is now in order. Things are as they should be. And again, Dr. Selhammer says this. At the close of chapter 2, the author puts the final touches on his account of what it means for humankind to be in God's image and likeness. If humanity is the crown of God's creation, then the woman is the jewel in that crown. She is something splendid. The final verses of chapter 2 serve as, as, a, as a point of application and a, and a point of exclamation. Look with me there. Verse 24. Therefore a man shall leave his wife and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. To end the creation account with the statement, the man and his wife were both naked and not ashamed, it does three things. First, it reveals the degree to which things were in order. 
that which causes feelings of shame for people, almost, universal, almost universally public nakedness. In general, that's kind of a shameful thing that people don't want to happen, right? You have dreams and you're naked and it's like, oh man, what happened? Why did I go outside without clothes on? I don't know if that happens to you, that happens to me. It's like, wait, what, what's going on here? Typically, public nakedness is a thing that is shameful. But in the garden, it's not. There's no shame for the man and his wife in the garden. That which the Bible consistently portrays as shameful, nakedness, is here portrayed as good and right and orderly. So this phrase, it's an exclamation point on how very good things were in the garden. So good that not even nakedness was shameful. Humans had nothing to hide and were free to be themselves with one another. Second, it, it summarizes. If one had to summarize the quality of life for the man and his wife in the garden, how would one do so? They were naked and were not ashamed. It summarizes. Third, it invites. It's hard to read those words and not long for that type of relational unity and vulnerability. It's designed to say that what you were, uh, that this is what you were made to be before God. It says, come into that. It's an ideal, right, that every one of us at some level desires that type of unity and vulnerability. I said earlier that it was also a point of exclamation uh, and a point of application. So, so how should one apply this explanation of creation? What do we do with this detailed explanation of how God created man and woman? And the author gives some straightforward guidance. He says, because of all that has been explained concerning the man and the woman, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. So what does that mean the reader should do? In general, men and women leave their natural families and become one in similar fashion as the man and the woman. They should live in unity and partnership, bringing flourishing into the world, imaging God through their distinct maleness and femaleness. That's what they're being invited into. That's what they're being encouraged to do. But there's another layer to all of this that I think we should consider. If we consider Paul's take on verse 25 in his letter to the Ephesian church, the plot thickens a little bit. So look with me at Ephesians 5, 25 to 33. It says this. It says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own body, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. In the midst of instructing the church concerning marriage, Paul can't resist quoting Genesis 2. In doing so, he pulls back the curtain to reveal a mystery. And here it is. Genesis 2.24, in some mysterious way, 
is speaking about Christ and the church. And one could conclude that all of Genesis 2 is foreshadowing a Christ church reality. Time fails us this morning to discuss all that Paul intended to say in Ephesians 5, 25 to 33, but I want to encourage you uh, to read that later, uh, today or later this week, looking for how you might imitate uh, the Christ church relationship in your home. And again, if you have specific questions about love and submission in the marriage relationship, I would uh, point you to that uh, Colossians 3 sermon. Uh, it being a companion uh, verse to Ephesians 5 might, might be helpful to listen to that. I'd like to highlight three parallels that Paul mentions between Ephesians 5 and Genesis 2. One, as the woman and man share a unity of body and likeness like none of the other created beings, so Christ and his church share a likeness. One body where all are members. The church is the body of Christ in this world. We image him reflecting God to all who will see. This should sober us. And we should live accordingly to that reality. In unity and oneness, loving and serving one another as we would our own bodies. Second, as the man's sleep and shared body gave life to the woman, so the death of Christ and broken body give life to the church. Christ loved us so deeply that he would have his side split open while fully conscious, nailed naked and ashamed to a cross, knowing that on the other side of that shameful cross was the joy of obeying his father and securing his beloved bride. Christ awoke on the third day, to the reality that God had kept his promise. And dear friends, one day, you and I will fall into the sleep of death, clinging to the promise that God will bring us home to his city and his presence. A third reality. As the woman plays a crucial role in the creation narrative, so the bride of Christ plays a crucial role in the culmination of history. Look in Revelation 21, starting in verse 1, it says this, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first earth and the first heaven, or sorry, the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw a holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall their mourning, nor their crying, nor their pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And then in verse 9, he continues, Then came one of the seven angels who had seven bowls full of the seven last plagues, and spoke to me, saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. 
And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. We see here that the Bible begins similarly. It concludes. It begins and ends almost the same way. God prepares a place for his beloved people, his sons and his daughters, where they can flourish in relationship with him and his son by the Spirit. What was foreshadowed in Eden with the man and the woman will be fulfilled in a new city of God's people where the bride will be presented in splendor to her husband, who is Christ. And just as Genesis 2 ends with a bit of an invitation into being naked and unashamed, so the Bible ends with an invitation. Look down in verse 17 of uh, chapter 22. It says this, The Spirit and the bride say, Come, and let the one who hears say, Come, and let the one who is thirsty come, and let the one who desires take the water of life without price. Anyone who is thirsty for life is invited to come and drink from the free water of life that God gives. That's the invitation. It was purchased through the death of Christ, and it overflows to you from his full life. He died but was raised, so you and I can today be raised with him. We can live forever as he lives. So why are we here? Why are we here, church? I would say this. To reflect God by living with a deep likeness to Christ and unity with one another. Inviting those who don't yet know Jesus to come receive life from him in this life and in the city to come. That's why we're here. And we see that as the common theme throughout the Bible. That that story of creation is played out through the words of Scripture. And the way it begins is the way that it ends. All pointing us to our hope, our deliverer, who truly is Christ. Knowing and hearing God's word, good, his good word to us, we're now going to take communion together. We're going to come to the Lord's table and remember that the side of Jesus was pierced to create his church. His blood poured out for us. The Lord's table is open to all believers who are walking not in perfection, but in repentance and faith, clinging to Christ this morning. Uh, if you are physically um, 
If it's difficult for you to, to approach the table and you would like someone to bring your, uh, the elements to you, if you would, just please raise your bulletin up as folks begin to approach the front. We've got some ushers who will keep an eye out for you. And when they acknowledge you, you can lower it back down and they'll bring the elements back to you. Uh, if you can, as you approach the table this morning, please use the center and wall aisles to approach the table. Hold on to the elements. Use the other two aisles to return to your seats. And I'll come back up in just a moment and lead us in the taking of the Lord's table altogether. Let me pray for us. Jesus, in this passage, we are once again pointed towards your incredible love for us. All the good things about marriage and the relationship between the man and the woman, they point us to you. That you gave yourself for us, broken, bruised, and bloodied, so that you would have a bride, so that you would have a people, and that we could live before you cleansed, able to stand before you naked and unashamed. You see us for who we are, and you love us. And you love us enough to transform us. So even as we approach your table again today, Jesus, as we eat with you, change us again. This is your goodness that binds our heart to you as we sang this morning. This is your goodness that draws us back to you when we are prone to wonder. There is not a husband, there is not a God like this who would love us like this. So draw us near to you this morning in faith. We pray. Amen. The table is open.